Last week, we considered what I call Jesus' messianic manifesto. As he comes in to the synagogue in his own hometown, he asks for the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unfolds it to Isaiah 61, reads the first two verses about this one on whom the Spirit will rest, who will preach good news to the poor and liberate the oppressed. And he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And you might expect, if you were in the synagogue that day, for a revival to break out. People all of a sudden recognizing in Jesus the one who was to come, finally arriving here. And there are certainly positive responses to Jesus that we see right out of the gate, right? Back in verse 15, chapter 4, we read that as he taught in their synagogues, he was glorified by all. We also read in verse 22 that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. We also read in verse 32 that they were astonished at his teaching. We read in verse 36 that they were all amazed. So there's certainly positive responses to Jesus that are coming on the heels of his teaching in the synagogue. However, those aren't the only kinds of responses he's receiving. He's also receiving many negative ones, some of them indifferent, some of them more hostile. For the indifferent ones, we might look at verse 22, where someone says, is this not Joseph's son? Or for the more hostile ones, we read in verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. What's behind all of this? What's going on? Is this just human personalities? Just different people responding to Jesus in different ways based on how they hear him? Or is something more sinister happening? Well, if you read the passage, it's pretty clear that what's behind all of this in many ways, is the work of the devil. Look at verse 13 of Luke chapter 4. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, that is from Jesus, until an opportune time. You didn't think he was done, were you? No, he's not done. In fact, that opportune time is... Verse 14, the very next verse. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now, that phrase, power of the Spirit, is meant to clue us into something. Jesus is getting ready for another attack on the devil. How do we know that? Because in the beginning of chapter 4, we read, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When the Spirit fills Jesus, he's getting ready to encounter significant demonic opposition. And so the fact that he's moving forward into the synagogue to teach in the power of the Spirit seems to indicate that his battles with the devil are far from over. In fact, Peter, the apostle, in Acts chapter 10, puts the interaction with the devil as the primary focus of what is happening in this passage. Peter later comments on this passage in Acts chapter 10, verses 38 and 39, when he says, 
You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Why, Peter? He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So when we take inventory of the demonic expulsion that is taking place in Luke chapter 4, Jesus' ministry in Nazareth becomes all the more apparent. In our text, we're going to see two different expulsions. Jesus is expelled out of Nazareth, and demons are expelled out of people. And in these two expulsions, we will see how the Messiah's manifesto is getting worked out in real time, how Jesus is setting the oppressed free, liberating captives, and revealing that this is, in fact, the year of the Lord's favor. However, it's also revealing that the devil is going to oppose all of this and try to keep people in spiritual blindness, in spiritual oppression, and in spiritual captivity. He's not going to give up without a fight. So here's the main point of the sermon this morning in Luke chapter 4. I hope you'll see it in the passage, and then we're going to walk through the passage to try to prove it. Main point, the devil will expel Jesus out of your life, or Jesus will expel the devil out of your life. It's the only thing that can happen in anybody's life. The devil will expel Jesus out of your life, or Jesus will expel the devil out of your life. So we're going to look at, first of all, Jesus being expelled, and then devils being expelled. And underneath each one of those, we're going to have three criteria for how you can discern which one you're in. All right? Number one, Jesus is expelled through the influence of demons. Now, if you are among us this morning, and this would, I would assume, would be a minority... But if you're among us this morning and you have yet to submit your life to the lordship of Jesus, the Bible is really crystal clear, and Jesus specifically is really crystal clear of the condition that you find yourself in. He says in John chapter 8, verse 44, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies, end quote. So if we live under the dominion of sin, that is ourselves, self-rule, then we live under the dominion of Satan. Our eyes are also blinded to our need for the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.4. In their case, that is the case of unbelievers, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So then how do we know that the devil is seeking to expel Jesus from our lives? What are the signs of his activity? Well, first of all, here's a question. Are we inoculated to the uniqueness of Jesus? Are we inoculated to the uniqueness of Jesus? Look at verse 22. Here's where we begin. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? They are inoculated to the uniqueness of Jesus. They don't see anything special about him, do they? We know how inoculations work, right? 
They work because they give you a little bit of a measured dose so that when you encounter the real thing in real life, it doesn't mess with you anymore. Isn't that the danger for many of us? Maybe especially people like us? Because we're so around Jesus just so much. Just enough Jesus to be inoculated against the real thing? Just enough church? Just enough songs? Just enough Christian music on the radio? Just enough conferences? Just enough Christian books? We have a familiarity with Jesus, but we're, we're not really always come face to face with the real Jesus. These people in Nazareth, they grew up with Jesus. They knew him. They saw him. They played flag football with him. That's anachronistic, but you get my point. They could touch him. They ate meals with him. He was this boy that grew up in this little town along with all the rest of them. And you have to understand that many first century Jews expected the Messiah to be a conquering king from some sort of royal family who had a high social status. So they were taken aback by this Jesus who had just claimed to be the Messiah, but he came from an ordinary family. The folks in Nazareth had a hard time accepting that this man who grew up among them, who pounded nails for them, who ate meals with them, who attended synagogue with them, who looked just like one of them, could ultimately, ultimately be someone who was greater than them. They were too familiar with Jesus to be overly impressed with him. To them, he was just Mary and Joseph's son. He was just a carpenter. He was just a boy who grew up with them. He's just a good teacher like everybody else. And it was a familiar saying that Jesus later quoted that a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, or, or as we might say, familiarity breeds contempt. Some of us are so familiar with Jesus, we're no longer impressed by him. And that's a really scary place to be. There are so many people in our own town, perhaps even in this congregation this morning, who confess faith in Christ and go to church. But there is nothing going on in your life meaningfully spiritually. There will be people who have no beef with Jesus, but they got no relationship with him either. They're like the people in Nazareth. Appreciate the show. Recognize some special things about Jesus. If he can solve a few of your problems, that's great. But familiarity can breed unbelief. Here's what J.C. Ryle says. We learn for one thing how apt men, and we could put women, boys, girls, are to despise the highest privileges when they are familiar with them. We shall do well to remember this lesson. We are always in danger of undervaluing the means of grace when we have them in abundance. We are apt to think lightly of the privilege of an open Bible, a preached gospel, and the freedom of meeting together for public worship. We grow up in the midst of these things and are accustomed to have them without trouble. And the consequence is that we often hold them very cheap and underrate the extent of our mercies. Let us take heed to our own heart. It is an evil day with our souls when Christ is in the midst of us, and yet because of our familiarity with his name is lightly esteemed. Maybe this would be especially a word of danger just that's associated with those of, you, those of us who are young or kids growing up in the context of the church. I didn't grow up in the church. I had my own dangers, okay? There's no advantage. I would want your dangers over my dangers. 
But if you're growing up in the midst of Christianity, just realize it has a way of deadening you to Christianity. When you sit here week after week, something is happening. Nothing never happens. Something is always happening. You are becoming deader or you're becoming more alive. And so take heed how you hear. Do not despise your privileges. Do not despise the incalculable mercies that you receive contrary to millions of other children around the world. God planted you here to save you. God planted you here to call you out of darkness. God planted you here to surround you from the moment that you had any consciousness that there was a God in heaven and a Christ who loved you and who gave his life for you and rose from the dead that you might live with him forever. So recognize that and say, Lord Jesus, please don't ever let me stop loving you. That would be a great prayer for you to pray. Lord, please help me all that I learn of you to never get tired of that, to never get bored with that, to never be like, oh yeah, I've already read the gospel of Luke. I know he got kicked out. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. Can we go home? I'm hungry. Don't do that. The Lord has given you so much and the Lord will keep giving you so much. And the devil wants to inoculate you against all of that. We're already born inoculated in our sin. But the fact that week after week, God visits us, really day after day as you open the scriptures, visiting you, giving you words about him, we have so much privilege and so much light, let's not despise it. So that's the first way the devil is at work to expel Jesus out of our lives. He tries to get us inoculated to Jesus' uniqueness. But secondly, do we demand that Jesus prove himself to us? Do we demand that Jesus prove himself to us? That's another way the devil is working to expel Jesus out of our lives. Look at verses 23 and 24. And he said to them, Jesus responding to this question, is not this Joseph's son? Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, No prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. The people are saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, listen, if you are who you just said you were, if you, we know what you're saying when you say Isaiah 61, that's a Messiah, right? I get that. Spirit of the Lord is an upon me, anointed one, Messiah. All right, I want you to do something. If If you say you are who you are, there's lots of things in this town that you haven't fixed. You need to fix some things here at home before you go off helping others. You've been healing people in Capernaum. We heard about that. But you haven't been doing it here in Nazareth, your own hometown. I think it's a little suspect, don't you think? Why aren't you healing people here at home? We're just hearing about it. Prove it. Prove it. Heal somebody here in Nazareth. We'll believe your claims then. So in other words, if you really think you're the Messiah, do something messianic here local. Give us some proof. They wanted more evidence before they would receive Jesus as their king. The people of Nazareth were making their faith contingent on Jesus doing a sign for them 
on performing for them on demand. Who's that sound like? Look back at verse 9 of chapter 4. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Prove it. When you demand proof beyond what Jesus has been pleased to give you, it's evidence that the devil is trying to expel Jesus from your life. Jesus knew that performing a miracle would not help them because they were already inclined towards skepticism and unbelief. Is this not Joseph's son? No amount of miracles is going to help that. You're already predisposed to see Jesus a certain way. You're not even open to another possibility. No amount of miracles will help. So Jesus cites two Old Testament examples to prove it. He's going to give them some more teaching. He cites Elijah and Elisha, which we read in our responsive reading. But why does he cite those two? Because these are two prophets who were rejected by Israelites in spite of the miracles they performed. And the result was Gentiles believe God's benefits instead. Look at verse 25 to 27 where Jesus shares these two illustrations. But in truth, Jesus says, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath, that's Gentile territory in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them were cleansed but only named in the Syrian, a Gentile. So he says, lots of activity of God was going on in Israel and nobody was receiving the ministry of the prophets. So the ministry of the prophets was sent outside the walls of Israel into Gentile lands and they were being received readily. Behold what's happening with the Messiah. It's exactly what happened to the Old Testament prophets. He says, Jesus says to them, when Elijah was a prophet in these parts, remember he ministered in the northern kingdom and this is where Galilee is in the same northern kingdom of Israel. When Elijah was in these parts, there were lots of widows in Israel, and he didn't raise any of their sons back to life, but instead God sent him to this pagan woman in Sidon of all places, and he stayed in her house, and he raised her boy from the dead. And when Elisha was in these parts, there were all sorts of lepers in Israel, but he didn't heal any of them. Instead, a pagan Syrian named Naaman came to them and said, said, heal me, Elisha, And God granted that Elisha would heal Naaman as he dipped seven times in the muddy Jordan River. Jesus says, were there not many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah? No doubt there were. Yet to none of them was the prophet sent. All were passed over in favor of a Gentile widow at Zarephath. Were there not many lepers in the days of Elisha? No doubt there were. Yet to none of them was the privilege of any healing granted. Naaman, the Syrian, the Gentile pagan general, was the only one who was cleansed. Two pagans, one widow, one Assyrian general, both outsiders, were blessed by God because they responded in faith to the word of Israel's prophets. Now what's different about them and the people of Nazareth? Jesus says, well, you know, 
You people here in Galilee, you're just like Israel in those days. You don't believe. God sent his anointed to you, but his word was not enough for, me, for you. You demanded a miracle, and you don't even think that I've done the miracles that I've done in other parts and other places. So guess what? God's, God is going to do to you just like he did to them. He's not going to give you the miracles. There will be no miracle doing here in Nazareth because of your unbelief. And with these words, Jesus was saying that his ministry would be marked by widespread Jewish rejection. Not exclusively. Many of his disciples were believing Jews. And many more to come. But especially the Jews in Nazareth were behaving just as wickedly as the Jews that rejected Elijah and Elisha hundreds of years earlier, and that as a result, God's grace would be withheld from them and given to believing Gentiles. And suddenly, this happy homecoming in the synagogue turns into a mob lynching because they heard what Jesus said. And now it gets violent. So here's the first two ways that the devil was trying to expel Jesus from their lives. Inoculate them to the uniqueness of Jesus, which he has succeeded in doing. And secondly, helping them to see that there was nothing unique that, or making demands of Jesus that he must perform miracles for them in order for, him, for them to believe in him. Is that any of us this morning? Is that what's keeping some of you in unbelief? You're just waiting for the Lord to do a visible miracle or something special for you? You're saying, okay, Lord, I'll believe if you just do this. Then show it to me. Like, really show it to me. I'll, I'll believe then. You wouldn't. You wouldn't believe. I wouldn't believe if the mir- bare miracle were there. It happened plenty, and people never believed it. So, but, but yeah, if he, if he would really just do something like big, like write Jesus saves in the sky and turn the clouds red and send fire, then we would get it. No, no. Let's, that is merely a manifestation of the, the first problem, inoculated to the uniqueness of Jesus. His word bears no authority in your life alone. If his word is enough, then you will follow him, and then you will see, oh, he is the son of God. He is. As soon as you start walking it out and living by faith in him. So thirdly, here's the third marker. Do we silence the voice of Jesus when he says something we don't like? Do we silence the voice of Jesus when he says something we don't like? Look at verses 28 to 30. This is what happened to the crowd. Jesus just said something they don't like. He just said that we were unbelieving Jews who were under God's wrath and that he's going to take the Messiah and the Messiah is going to go to the Gentiles, those dogs, those pagans, those unbelievers. How dare he say such a thing? And then verse 29, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they would throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Their plans to take Jesus out to the edge of the town of Nazareth and throw him off a cliff. In Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, his longtown friends, 
longtime friends, drove him out of town. Now, the word drive out is used elsewhere in this gospel for the expulsion of demons. Jesus drove out the demon. And ironically, Jesus' hometown treats him like a demon as they seek to expel him from their midst. In chapter 4, verse 29, the crowd takes Jesus to the brow of the hill so that they could throw him down the cliff. Now, this line of thinking may help us to explain an odd detail in this passage. Did you notice the connection with the third temptation of Jesus in chapter 4, verse 9? And he took him, Satan took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. So this, these townspeople in Nazareth are behaving under the influence of the demonic. They are doing the exact same thing that the devil wanted Jesus to do. Throw yourself off a cliff, man. Except for they're doing it now. So in attempting to throw Jesus down the cliff, they're behaving like the devil who also wanted to dethrone Jesus. Instead of being convicted of their sins that Jesus had uncovered in these stories about Elisha and Elisha, what do they decide to do? They protect themselves. They silence the voice of Jesus in their life, and they're not going to admit what their hearts are really like. They're not going to grapple with their unbelief. They're not going to repent of their sin. They're not going to allow the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to show them what they're really like. So they're going to get rid of the problem. And the problem's not their sin. The problem's Jesus. Dear ones, behind any stubborn refusal to submit to Jesus Christ is the work of the devil. You are not free. Don't, he tells you that, I know, because he told me that. He tells us all that. He's told Adam and Eve that. You want to be free? Disobey God. You're not free, you're a slave. He's got you in a garden, under commands. Go figure out who you are, man. So that's his, old, that's, that's his, that's his main line that he beats into our heads all day long. Do it your way. As Burger King says, You rule, right? Have it your way. And so behind all that is the seed of the serpent, the hiss of the serpent, the power of the serpent. The devil will feed you all kinds of self-protecting lies to get you to avoid listening to and following Jesus. Maybe you wouldn't grab Jesus today and take him out to the outskirts of town and try to kill him if he were here preaching this morning. But if Jesus is meddling in your business and getting up in your heart and showing you your sin and you reject his conviction, you're no different from the crowd that did what they did to Jesus on that day. You would have joined them, and I would have too. It doesn't have to be that way, though, because Jesus can expel the devil from your life. So those are the three markers when the devil's trying to expel Jesus from somebody's life. Now let's turn to Jesus and the markers that he gives for how he expels the devil from our lives. So how do we know Jesus is expelling the devil out of our lives? Point number two, demons are expelled through the influence of Jesus. First of all, here's the first criteria. Do we recognize the supreme authority of Jesus? Instead of being inoculated against his uniqueness, do we recognize this is the son of God? Look at verses 31 and 32. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. 
There's the first marker. When Jesus starts expelling the devil out of your life, he starts to show you that his word, Jesus' word is authoritative and it starts to move and shake in your life. Jesus' teaching astonishes the people because of its authority. Not because he was such a great speaker, but because he spoke as one who had the right to tell them what they ought to believe about God. And it was full of the Holy Spirit. And because of that authority, no doubt the demonic realm felt threatened by Jesus' teaching. So the effect of Jesus' teaching here is not only going to astonish the audience, it's going to drive a demon out of the darkness and make him a witness to the truth. Notice what happens at the very next verse. In the synagogue, verse 33, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the, who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus starts teaching with authority, and demons start confessing the truth. They know who Jesus is. He's the Holy One of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Isn't it interesting that the demons recognize who he is? How does this compare with the response of the people in Nazareth? Isn't he Joseph's boy? Demons don't want you to know who Jesus is. They don't want you to know what they know. But even the demons proclaim him to be the Christ, the Son of God. Doesn't that speak of how spiritually blind we can be to the truth that's right in front of our eyes? And as only Jesus can exercise dominion over demons, and so only Jesus can rebuke a fever or open our eyes so that we see him for who he really is. You see, the sad thing is that Jesus is known by people who don't even love him and worship him for who he really is. They know exactly who he is. They just don't treasure him. They don't trust him. They know exactly who he is. They don't put their faith in him and follow him. I wonder if there are any among us this morning growing up Christian homes, going to VBSs and Sunday schools and growing up under the preaching of the gospel and knowing all the right answers about Jesus, but not just not loving him, just not trusting him, just not following him, just not putting your faith in him, just not treasuring him, just not worshiping him. What a tragedy it would be to, be, to have demonic theology be the end of your experience of Christ. He's the Holy One of God, I know that. But that's it. That's it. That's where it stops. A correct doctrinal affirmation. And that's it. But not to love him, not to believe on him, not to trust him, not to treasure him, not to follow him, not to put your faith in him, and certainly not to worship him. And so that's what it means to recognize the supreme authority of Jesus is to actually allow his word to have significant weight in our lives such that it shapes our decisions and it shapes our devotion and it shapes how we spend our time and who we worship and all those sorts of things. J.C. Ryle again says, let us beware of an unsanctified knowledge of Christianity. It's a dangerous possession, but a fearfully common one in these latter days. We may know the Bible intellectually and have no doubt about the truth of its contents. We may have our memories well stored with its leading texts and be able to talk glibly about its leading doctrines. And all this time, the Bible may have no influence over our hearts and wills and consciences. We may in reality be nothing better than the demons. Let it never content us to know the religion with our heads only. 
We may go on all our lives saying, I know this, I know that, and sink at last into hell with those words upon our lips. Let us see that our knowledge bears fruit in our lives. Does our knowledge of sin make us hate it? Does our knowledge of Christ make us trust and love him? Does our knowledge of God's will make us strive to do it? Does our knowledge of the fruit of the Spirit make us labor to show them in our daily behavior? Knowledge of this kind is really profitable. Any other religious knowledge will only add to our condemnation at the last day. End quote. My friends, knowledge that does not lead to trust and faith and love and service and knowledge is demonic knowledge. It's just demonic knowledge. Do not leave the precious truths that are proclaimed to you from God's word rattling around somewhere between your ears. Embrace the truth with all that you are in the very depths of your heart and love and trust and believe on and follow the Savior. Because the teaching of Jesus under authority, when we recognize his authority, will expel demons. It will cause them to flee. It's true then, it's true now. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, the Apostle Paul says that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but patient, able to teach, trusting that God will grant repentance, that they may escape the snare of the devil, having been captured by him to do his will. So what is it that frees satanic captives? The preaching of the word. The, the, the word of God. Uh, the the, the spirit-blessed, authoritative word of God is what drives out the demonic. Paul says, God may grant people repentance in order to come to a knowledge of what? The truth. And thereby escape the snare of the devil who has captured them to do his will. And this is exactly what we see taking place in these verses. Look again at verse 35. Jesus rebuked him, that is the devil, the demon, saying, be silent, come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? Word! What is this word? It wasn't even this man. It was the word. The, the spoken word of Jesus drove the demon out. For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. You better believe they did. That thing went viral. This is why James tells us, Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He doesn't like your submission to God. He won't be around it. It stinks. It smells. It rots in his nostrils. Ugh, ugh, obedience. Obey the Lord. Devil's gone. He doesn't stick around. We grant authority to whomever we obey. Reckon yourselves therefore dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let the flesh, the mortal members in your body, to let, let you serve sin. But he says, crucify those things, serve righteousness. See, we grant authority to whomever we trust. The devil has no authority over any Christian except the authority we grant by believing him. The more we believe him, the more influence and the control that he has. He can't take us. He can't possess us, but he can influence us. Don't give him a foothold, right? Ephesians 4, don't let the devil get a foothold. But when we submit ourselves to God, when we come under his authority by trusting, obeying, enjoying him, demons literally get the hell away from us. 
And this act of faith releases great spiritual power and the demons can't stand it. So that's the first way, supreme authority of Jesus. Second, do we appeal to Jesus to heal us? Do we appeal to Jesus to heal us? Look at verse 38. And he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. So Jesus now demonstrates his authority over sickness. Surely it's not a coincidence that Luke uses the same word for how Jesus spoke to the fever that he did for how Jesus spoke to the demon. I'm not saying that all sickness is demonic, but some of it is. And I'm not saying it's even the case with Peter's mother-in-law that it was demonic. It could be. We're not told. But verse 35 says that Jesus rebuked the demon, and verse 39 says that Jesus stood over her and rebuked the fever. So Luke wants us to see that this absolute authority that Jesus has and the power of his word extends not only to the world of demons, but it extends to the world of disease. Luke now shows us that the power that Jesus has both over demons and over disease is not a one-off. So do we appeal to Jesus to heal us? If you do, he will and he will drive the devil out of your life. (laughs) You say, Jesus, heal me of my affliction, myself, my sin. Heal me of my desire for self-rule and my addiction to my own temporal pleasure. Help me to care about myself in 50 trillion years and not just try to load everything I can into this life and lose my own soul but help me. And when you appeal to Jesus to heal you, he will. So the first way we drive the devil out is you recognize the supreme authority of Jesus and his teaching and his word, and then you appeal to him to heal you. Thirdly and finally, do we serve Jesus and seek to bring others to him? Do we serve Jesus and seek to bring others to him? Look at the end of verse 39. What happened immediately after Peter's mother-in-law was healed? He stood over her, rebuked the fever, verse 39, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, part of that's just being a good hostess, right? Part of that's also a natural response of what happens to anybody who Jesus heals. We want to serve him. We want to do what we can for him. So the response of Peter's mother-in-law is a great example of everyone who's been healed by Jesus. We identify those healed by Jesus by those who are serving Jesus. You want to know whom Jesus has healed? Look who's serving him. If they're not serving him, he hadn't healed them. If he has healed them, they're serving him. That's how we know. Those whom Jesus saves, serve. And one of the ways that service manifests manifests itself is in our eagerness to bring others to Jesus. We want for others what we have experienced from him. We want others to be healed as we have been healed. Look at verse 40. Now, when the sun was setting and all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. What happens? I've been healed. Get the family, get the friends, get the coworkers, get the neighbors, bring them to Jesus. One of the ways we do this is by appealing to Jesus on their behalf in prayer, right? Verse 38, 
they appealed to him on her behalf. How do we do that today? We pray. We, we over and over and over in our prayer meetings, in our public prayers, in our private prayers, we pray for people to come to know Jesus. We appeal to Jesus to save people. And then we need to start bringing people to Jesus or bringing Jesus to them. So let's continue to appeal to Jesus to heal our loved ones. And let's do all we can to get them around him or to get, or to get around them so that we can bring the presence of Christ in us to them. Again, the demonic realm hates this and it's going to engage you when you try to get people out of captivity. (laughs) But in this final scene, numerous people come to Jesus and he heals them of both illness and demon possession. And the distinction between the sick and the demon possessed shows that demons are not behind all sickness, various diseases, many demons. But when Jesus speaks or Jesus touches, they go. His authority, his power are absolute. No demon, no disease can stand when Jesus exerts his authority which he can do wherever he pleases, then and now. And we're proof of it. Because for the vast majority of us in this room this morning, the devil has been bound and cast out. And we should thank the Lord for that. And we should endeavor all the more to submit our lives to the authority of Jesus, to continue to appeal to Jesus, to heal us, and to do all we can to serve him and bring others to him. That will not be without demonic opposition, but oh, you will know the presence of Christ, and oh, you will know the sustaining grace of Christ, and you will know the power of Christ in the midst of your weakness. So these verses we've considered have a great gospel proclamation for us, and that is two words, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Every time the devil tries to come, who ends up leaving? They leave. They left Nazareth. Now, he left too. He slipped out, but they were the ones that were driven out. He passed through. They didn't cast him out. He removed himself. But with demons, they're going whether they like it or not. And they're going because Jesus told them to. Did they not say that? Have you come to destroy us? Jesus could have said, oh, yeah. Not right now, but in a sense. Yeah, you know, you know, who I, you know, I'm, gonna, you know I'm taking you out, right? They know that, which is why they're so furious. But what Jesus does here in Luke 4 is just a foretaste of what Jesus is doing and will do to the devil and his demons on the last day. Satan can't stop Christ. He will not defeat us as Christ's people. The present diminishment of Satan's power evidenced by the believers that compromise this congregation is a foretaste of the greater victory to come when his ultimate and eternal doom happens at the return of Jesus. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And until that time, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and may it be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways in which we are reminded of our victorious King Jesus who has come to destroy the works of the devil. And for so many of us in this room, for the vast majority of us, thank you for destroying the works of the devil in our life. Thank you for conquering the power of sin. Thank you for conquering the penalty against our sins by being our, by your precious blood and righteousness that we sang about earlier. That, our, that, our, that our, our beauty and our glorious dress amidst flaming worlds and these arrayed, with joy can we lift up our head.
because we know that our sins have been paid for. And we are freed from the only thing the devil really has against us, which is unforgiven sin. And therefore, all the bullets have been taken out of his gun, and all he can do is shoot blanks at us and scream and yell a lot. But we know his days are numbered, and we know that he and his legion of demons are going down, and they're trying to bring people in this room with them. Lord, exercise your victory in their lives. Do not let the devil take them down. Save them. Call them out of darkness. Regenerate, renew, enliven, and do it all for the glorious praise of our risen Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the devil defeater himself. Amen.